Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture as we hit midweek. Thanks for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We hope you're safe and well. Lots to talk about. More developments on dicamba. Still more questions than answers in some cases. A lot of confusion even after EPA took the uh, move that they made to uh, allow existing stocks to be used. There are still some questions and concerns. We're going to talk with Darren Kopik, President and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association, about those concerns. Also today, a lot of concerns about the renewable fuel standard and the tax on it and the small refinery exemptions. Those issues uh, we'll discuss today with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. And as we take a look at the ag economy, what areas are rebounding, what areas are still really hurting, we'll talk with John Newton, Chief Economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. But we'll kick things off with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be here, Mike. This dicamba story is, uh, I don't know, each day we... We think we make a little progress, but there are more questions that pop up, and a lot of people are still wondering just how all this is going to play out. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think it's quite interesting. You know, uh, when dicamba was was in the in the pipeline, uh, you know, there were a lot of questions about how EPA put this out. Uh, you know, whether the regulations that they uh, that they came up with were enough to really control, you know, the spread of it. Um, and I think uh, it was quite interesting to see how the agency didn't even, I mean, it doesn't appear that the agency even considered filing any sort of a court appeal from that Ninth Circuit decision. Uh, that's somewhat unusual considering that uh, the EPA has gone to bat for other products and, and in other cases as well. And so um, I'm not really sure what to make of it at this point, but I do know that uh, it really came at a rough time. You know, uh, there's probably 60 million acres uh, of crop out there or expected crop that uh, that was expecting to use this product. And I do think that this whole thing has put uh, a big amount of confusion out there. And I and I think just the agency's reaction to it was somewhat unprecedented. It just, uh, uh, you know, there, there was no reason for the agency, honestly, uh, not to file an appeal on this unless they just basically conceded that they they'd made a mistake from the get-go. You've got questions now about the, the cancellation order and the timing on the dates and, again, whether you can use certain products or not, who can and who can't, all kinds of questions. We'll get into that with Darren Kopik with the Ag Retailers Association a little bit later on, but certainly still a lot of uh, issues, especially when you get a ruling like this and then the reaction to it at this particular time. It'd be one thing if it happened in December or January, but when it comes now right. in June, uh, that that complicates things even more with the product that's already been used. It does. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, this, this agency ruling, though, it appears to allow the use of the product, uh, whatever is already out there in the market, um, I, I think that, uh, that that still raises a lot of questions and a lot of confusion about, uh, you know, the entire timing. You're right. This, uh, this seems like this could have been a decision that EPA made before this court case even went as far as it did. Uh, you know, the fact that EPA let this court case play out and then to make this decision is just really very confusing. 
you had EPA been more proactive on this, that could have saved a lot of this uh, confusion. But they didn't, so now we're dealing with it. So, hey, ag and EPA having issues. <laughs> We've been down this road a few times, haven't we? All right, let's uh, let's go yeah, on absolutely. now to to some of the other key issues in the meat packing industry. Uh, these COVID nineteen cases, positive cases, are still turning up. So we're uh, we're a long ways from uh, getting things back up and going the way they were. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, USDA put out a release the other day talking about uh, the plant capacity and how uh, now capacity is about up to what it should be, <clears throat> supposedly. But, uh, you know, I've heard stories from, from various people that, uh, you know, hog producers, for example, are still having difficulties. You know, they, they've got hogs to market, but yet uh, the personnel aren't available in some situations with some plants. And so that really is the issue, I think, right now is just getting – uh, getting the people who work in these plants up and, and healthy again and getting things rolling how they should be. Um, but then again, I mean, when you look at the whole situation, I think a lot of people are really, uh, really skeptical about the safety, you know, about returning to work and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things I think as it plays out, I think, uh, you know, it's somewhere along the way, I would, I would suspect some of these companies are going to have to find people who can, who can do the job one way or the other. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, we're still months away, I think, from really getting this thing going like it should be. And we're going to be talking with Jeff Cooper with the Re- Renewable Fuels Association in our next segment. But we're about to mark one year since uh, President Trump visited an Iowa ethanol plant. And there was so much hope and optimism that things would uh, be better for the uh, biofuels industry following that visit. But it hasn't really turned out that way. No, Mike, you know, and I think maybe the most disappointing aspect of what's what's occurred, uh, you know, there was a lot to do about the transparency. You know, a lot of the people uh, in rural America wanted to know about the about the small refinery exemptions that were that were made to the agency. And the agency came out with a a public dashboard that shows numbers and so on. But then we find out about uh, refining companies now filing applications for uh, waivers from other from other years. Uh, and that information isn't available. You know, as hard as much as we ask for it, and and, and wonder how many uh, how many potential gallons might be waived, and how it's going to affect the RFS. Uh, right now, the EPA is entirely tight-lipped, and so it, it does feel as if uh, we're kind of back to square one on the whole transparency issue. And even though the industry is making some uh, uh, somewhat of a rebound, it's still uh, hurting. And uh, a lot of questions will remain, how will it emerge from this? Yeah, you know, and I, I think you're right. You know, we are starting to see plants uh, open back up. Uh, but as always, has, it's always a question of what the RFS is going to be like, what the volumes are from year to year, uh, whether there's going to be exemptions, whatever the case may be. There's always, it just seems in these past six or eight years, there's been so much doubt in the RFS. And, and I think that really... It's always there, kind of undermining uh, uh, the industry. I've been saying this for several years, but while we talk so much about USDA's impact on agriculture, really it's EPA that has the greatest impact on agriculture (laughs) oftentimes. Yeah, it really has been. I mean, we're seeing it firsthand, you know, dicamba, ethanol. um, You know, in some some regards, I think uh, the agency has done some work that's attempted to make some things right, you know, with the Clean Water Act and, and so on. But you're right, EPA uh, always seems to be at the forefront and seems to be 
uh, creating a lot of headaches at times. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a commentary on that very topic. Uh, once in a while, they're together, like on the, uh, you know, uh, the clean water issues and things like that. But right. most of the time, it's been an adversarial relationship, and it looks like it's going to continue to be that way for some time. All right, thanks a lot, Todd. Good to talk with you, and we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Mike. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Well, we'll get into some of those biofuels issues and concerns next with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Tomorrow will mark one year from when President Trump visited that Iowa ethanol plant, and there was great optimism that things would uh, get better and there would be some uh, clarification and uh, improvement in policy decisions uh, concerning the RFS and small refinery exemptions. But here we are a year later, and you throw in a pandemic and still the ongoing concerns of the small refinery exemptions, and you see the the ethanol industry facing perhaps its biggest crisis ever. Here to talk about it is Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, thanks for joining us. I know as you about mark that one-year uh, anniversary of that visit by the president to Iowa and the ethanol plant, you were hoping this would be a, an anniversary of celebration, but it is one of concern. Well, that's right, Mike, and it's, it's hard to believe that it's been one year since uh, I had the the privilege of, of helping escort President Trump around Southwest Iowa Renewable Energy there in Council Bluffs, and, and a lot has changed uh, in that year. We were uh, welcoming the president there that day to celebrate the approval of year-round E15. That was something our industry had been working on for 10 years and finally accomplished, and, and we have seen some benefit from that uh, over the past year. Um, but any gains that we have seen from year-round E15 have been completely overwhelmed by losses that we've seen associated with continued small refinery exemptions. And, you know, and, and here we are a year later, and, and we're hearing there's more shenanigans going on at EPA regarding the small refinery exemption program and, and still no guarantee that we're going to see that 15 billion gallon per year RFS requirement actually enforced uh, by the agency. What is going on with the SREs? What 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 are your concerns now? Well, Mike, you know, again, last year and, and as late as, as December uh, of 2019, EPA was telling us uh, they would ensure that the 15 billion gallon requirement would actually be 15 billion gallons. You know, we'd seen that volume eroded the past several years by these secretive exemptions. Uh, and then we got a court ruling in late January that we thought really sealed the deal, and, and it overturned some of the past exemptions and set a precedent that we thought would <clears throat> definitely put a stop to EPA granting exemptions that aren't justified. But now here we are in June, and EPA hasn't adopted that court ruling or even really indicated how they're going to respond. Uh, we know they have 28 pending requests for more exemptions. They haven't said how they intend to handle those. And now we're hearing that EPA is receiving additional waiver requests for past years that would be potentially applied retroactively, uh, and they're not even disclosing how many of those you know, petitions they've received or, or what they intend to do there. So the confidence we had early in the year and then certainly at this time last year 
that EPA and the administration were going to put the RFS back on track, that, that confidence is quickly dissipating, and we're concerned that we're going to see more uncertainty and more unpredictability around the RFS this year. It really seems that EPA has, for the most part, ignored that court ruling. Well, they have, and their excuses, you, you know, they say, well, we know the refiners are going to appeal that ruling to the Supreme Court. They're going to ask the Supreme Court to review it. And so EPA is saying, we want to wait until that process plays out before we decide what to do here with this court ruling. Um, well, that's, you know, very likely going to be November or December this year before we hear any response from the Supreme Court. We think the, the Supreme Court will uh, turn down, uh, you know, a, a request to review the 10th the, the Circuit case. Um, but we got to wait until the Supreme Court, you know, says so. Um, and that's frustrating. And, you know, we know this is an election year, and that plays into all this. EPA isn't, isn't going to want to make any decisions that make refiners mad uh, in an election year. They say they don't want to make decisions that are going to make farmers mad. But the honest truth is keeping everyone in limbo is, is no better, and that just makes everybody mad. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, with this much controversy and uncertainty around the current status of the renewable fuel standard, what does this mean for the future of it when we're coming up to 2022 and things are going to be changing somewhat anyway? What do we think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen with the future of the RFS? Yeah, and that's that's a, a question we're we're really uh, examining right now, Mike. And I think most of your listeners probably know that the RFS does not end in 2022, uh, but we don't have specific volumes uh, written into law for the years after 2022. So, you know, the RFS requirements really are left to the discretion of EPA in those years after 2022. Uh, and we've seen how the agency has mismanaged the program even when they have specific direction from Congress, what's going to happen when they're left to their own devices. Um, you know, we think a lot of the, the answers to those questions are, are going to hinge on uh, the election and, and who's in the White House and who's running EPA uh, in the next few years. But we, we certainly are uh, strategizing on how we can ensure that the RFS continues to drive uh, growth and, and demand and, and does what it's supposed to do in, in the long term beyond 2022. But quite honestly, Jeff, when you, you know, you say it depends on who's in the White House, there have been these issues under Democrat and Republican administrations, right? I mean, it seems like this has yep. been, an, these have been issues uh, regardless of which party's in power. That's right. Unfortunately, the, the last year where we actually saw the RFS uh, volumes enforced as they were written into the law by Congress was 2013. And, and so, yes, the, the previous administration, um, you know, they, they abused a, a waiver provision in the statute and illegally granted waivers in 2014 through 2016. And then the new administration came in and we saw these small refinery exemptions. So this has been a, a long-standing battle and, and problem. Uh, that we've been dealing with, and, and uh, you know, it's it's been our mantra for the last six or seven years now to just enforce the law, uh, which is a very good law that Congress gave to EPA. Um, and, yes, it wasn't meant to make the refiners comfortable. Um, yes, it's going to require them to change their behavior and, and change the fuel market, but that was exactly the intent of the program. So let's honor 
the, the purpose and spirit of the law and enforce this program as it was intended. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people have lost sight of what the purpose and the intent of the law was. And That's right. Is. Um, give us an update on the state of the industry. Some some uh, production coming back online. We're seeing demand pick up a little bit. Uh, how much of a rebound is there so far? Well, we are seeing some, some rebound, um, and that's been positive, of course. We've seen five straight weeks of increases in, in ethanol production. Uh, we've seen successive increases in ethanol blending by refiners and blenders. Um, that's all, of course, due to the fact that gasoline demand is increasing as states have reopened and, and people are getting back on the roadways. I think there's a lot of uh, pent-up demand and a lot of people that had cabin fever are ready to get out um, and take a take a road trip and just get out of the house. Um, so we are seeing a, a, a nice rebound in gasoline consumption, and that's, of course, supportive for, for ethanol. Um, but we're still 25 30% below year-ago levels and, and about that same amount below where we were before the pandemic. Uh, so we have a ways to go yet. We still have, uh, you know, several dozen, you know, close to 40 ethanol plants that are fully idled today. Uh, that we hope uh, we'll be able to switch back on as demand continues to improve. Uh, but there's some uncertainty around that too, Mike. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions around, you know, will, will some people who who used to commute to an office building every day, uh, will they return to that? Or, or will they have they gotten comfortable working from home at least a few days a week? And, and will we see that? Um, and there's just, you know, other changes that I think we're, we don't quite have a, a good handle on yet uh, or know exactly what to expect long term because there were questions about fuel demand before COVID-19 we had seen uh, a lot of projections of it continuing to drop even before the pandemic yeah that, that's right uh, you know depending on who you're who, what analyst or agency you're following uh, there there were projections of a 10 to 15 percent reduction in gasoline consumption by 2030 so 10 years from now just based on increases and improvements in fuel economy. If we're driving more fuel-efficient vehicles, we're going to be consuming less gasoline and therefore would consume less ethanol if we're limited to that 10% of of the blend. So that's why higher blends like E15 and and E20, E30, and E85 become critically important uh, as we think about growing the industry long term. All right, Jeff. Thanks, as always, for the update. Take care. We'll stay in touch. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Have a good one. All right. Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. So some rebound, but still a lot of concerns for the ethanol industry. We're going to take a look at the ag economy overall with John Newton, chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, who will join us next. What segments are seeing a rebound and in those cases, how much of a rebound and what other areas are hurting the most? We'll talk about that next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, looking at the overall ag economy and trying to uh, see which parts are starting to rebound, which parts are still lagging behind in that recovery. John, thanks for joining us. There are some sectors of the ag economy starting to show some rebound we just talked with jeff cooper with renewable fuels association we're slowly seeing a fuel 
uh, consumption starts to increase, people starting to get out driving more, and that's uh, helping create a bit of a bounce back for the ethanol industry, although it still has a long ways to go. Are we seeing other sectors of the ag economy showing some improvement? Yeah, I, th- I think we are. Uh, as states are starting to reopen, uh, you indicated ethanol, uh, ethanol processing uh, has bounced back only down about 30% from where it was uh, in 2019. Ethanol inventories have, have come down uh, sharply. Uh, when you look at, at cattle and hog processing, we're at about 95% of the cattle processing compared to year-ago levels. Uh, pork slaughter capacity was, was actually above uh, year-ago levels as well. So we're seeing uh, those markets kind of bounce back. There's still animals that need to move through the supply chain. And then you look at what's happened in, in dairy markets. I mean, we're seeing milk prices, class 3 milk prices, that are higher than, than pre-COVID levels. Yeah, let's talk about that, uh, what's happening with the, with dairy prices. Um a pleasant development to see those prices moving up. What's behind that? Well, we, we have seen, you know, milk prices, uh, you know, increase in, in recent weeks. I think uh, there's two sides of the coin, however. Uh, you know, the cheese prices uh, have really accelerated, I think, on the back of, of restaurants uh, starting to reopen, demand in the food service sector picking up. Uh, but we haven't seen, uh, you know, a big rebound in the nonfat dry milk market. Uh, that market is, is predominantly driven by, by the exports. Uh, and so I, I think you're seeing higher Class 3 prices. Uh, there, it did break a little bit yesterday. Uh, maybe we're at the top of that rally, uh, but, but certainly, uh, you know, it's provided another opportunity uh, for dairymen to put some risk management in place, that's for sure. So when we look at the uh, corn and soybean picture, though, challenges there, so much that's still tied with China. Well, on the, on the corn side, you know, a lot of it, it the, the demand equation about what's, you know, what's ethanol, uh, you know, how, how quickly are we going to get ethanol back uh, to full capacity, obviously, is driving the corn market. Uh, the, the accelerated pace of planting this year, uh, the good to excellent conditions are also, you know, weighing on that uh, corn market as well. And then on soybeans, uh, you know, everything's, all eyes are on China, uh, their phase one commitments. Uh, whether or not we're going to see soybean demand accelerate uh, both for this old crop and then for that new crop uh, as well. And we'll get some updated numbers from USDA's World Ag Supply and Demand Estimates tomorrow. We have the the government assistance part of this. We think back to last year when uh, the market facilitation program payments had such an impact on on the farm income. Obviously, that's going to be a big part of the story here in 2020. Uh, it, it certainly is. I think when you when you you know pencil out 16 billion uh, going out to, to cattle and, and row crop producers, that's certainly going to uh, help farm income. We we saw the the FAPRI estimates that were released yesterday uh, still showing uh, farm income to be lower uh, in 2020 uh, and even lower again in, in 2021. I think the, the burdensome supplies of corn and soybeans that we're likely to have on hand with this new crop uh, is going to weigh on the farm economy and weigh on prices. But uh, make no mistake, you add the $16 billion CFAP money, you add the 14.5 MFP money and the 8.5 of MFP money, uh, government support programs, you add in the WIP Plus program, uh, government ad hoc support the last few years have, have certainly contributed uh, to the farm economic conditions. We're talking with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, we all long for getting back to the way things were, although we realize 
in many ways things will never be the same as they were before COVID-19. But as we we talk about trying to get the economy going again and getting things close to being back to normal, I think sometimes we forget that before COVID-19, the ag economy was not doing well then. So getting back to pre-COVID-19, that alone isn't going to fix uh, the challenges that agriculture was and continues to face. Well, I think, you know, if you if you go, let's, let's rewind back to the beginning of the year. But I think folks were optimistic when you look at the U.S.-Japan trade agreement, you look at USMCA, you look at the phase one deal with China. Folks thought we were round and third and heading into home, and things were, were going to start getting better uh, in the farm economy. We, we knew we were going to have big big crops coming this year, more acreage coming this year, record livestock and dairy production this year. But we were really hopeful uh, that demand would accelerate on the back of these new trade agreements. But uh, unfortunately, that light we saw at the end of the tunnel, I'm going to borrow uh, a phrase from Dr. Jason Lusk at Purdue, that light at the end of the tunnel was a freight train. And we got ran over by coronavirus. Yeah, so now we start looking ahead to post-COVID-19, whenever that comes. But uh, does agriculture, does it structurally, does it fundamentally uh, change? We we have investigations into livestock markets. We're looking at the supply chain issues. What do you see post-COVID-19 for agriculture? Well, I don't think there's a, a sector of the economy, Mike, that's not going to look back and and figure out, you know, where the blind spots were. How do we, you know, make our supply chain uh, more flexible, more resilient? I mean, we had a very, very efficient, just-in-time food delivery system uh, as it was, and in that kind of efficient system, uh, it, it's not optimal to build in uh, a lot of slack. It's inefficient, quite frankly. So, how do we revisit, uh, you know, putting in some uh, some shock absorbers? Uh, in the event that something like this happens in the future, does that mean we have, you know, idle processing capacity in case uh, facility, uh, you know, were to were to go down in a second wave again? You know, I think we're gonna we're gonna look back and and think about how we can do things differently in the face of a another pandemic. Maybe that means more automation, more e-commerce. Uh, I, I just I just think across the whole economy, uh, we're gonna be looking at these things. We've still got a, a lot of challenges just to get through COVID-19, we're seeing now concerns not only in the meatpacking industry, but in farm workers picking those fruits and vegetables, concerns about those health issues as as those workers move across the country. Uh, We already had a labor issue, ag labor issue going into this. This will make that Mm -hmm. an even tougher situation. It it certainly does. And that's why, you know, access to personal protective equipment is so important. Uh, people continue to, to try to uh, social distance as, as much as possible while while still, you know, being there to get the work done and, and protecting uh, the food supply chain. You know, we are seeing, uh, you know, I think the success of the uh, what the president did with making sure that the meatpacking plants had, had access to PPP. That's one of the reasons why uh, we're back near capacity. But, you know, we have to protect the workers across the whole supply chain. But we're seeing now the situation, John, food prices going up more than we've seen in quite some time. But we know that the, the price the producers are getting, those aren't jumping way up. So does that bring into question more the, our marketing system? Well, I think, you know, the food prices, uh, you know, in April, uh, food prices went up by 2.6% uh, percent is what the Bureau of Labor Statistics indicated. Um, that was the highest uh, year-over-year change since 19. 19- 74, uh, I believe, and I think part of the reason 
you know, we saw some of these food prices go up at the grocery store was one with all the consumption moving to the grocery channel. Uh, grocers ha- didn't have to compete as hard to get your business. So we didn't see the same type of promotions on food that we had saw prior to uh, the coronavirus. So I think that's certainly one key component. Uh, wholesale prices for, for eggs and some of the livestock products uh, also went up. But you're exactly right. It didn't mean that trickled back down to the farmer. But then you think about some of these retailers are having to put in, or most of them, uh, purchase PPE equipment for their workers. So there's additional costs in the supply chain uh, that have to be absorbed somewhere, and I think we're passing it along to the consumers currently. Now, I think the question is, once those prices go up, do they come down, or maybe how long does it take them to come back down? Well, we, we've seen, you know, we've seen the uh, the live to cutout spread uh, come all the way back down from where it was. Uh, the box beef spread has come down from where it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I, I think as restaurants start to reopen, as states start to reopen, uh, you know, there's going to be more competition. Uh, retail prices are often pretty sticky, which means they, they don't come down uh, as fast as they go up. Uh, so it may take some time, but, but I think competition in the space will, will help alleviate some of the pressure on higher retail prices. I always think after a huge life-altering event like COVID-19, there are opportunities. We, we focus a lot on the challenges we all have to deal with, but there will be opportunities uh, for those that can take advantage of uh, through innovation and other uh, opportunities that are out there. It'll be interesting to see how agriculture and, and food production uh, ma- takes advantage of some of those opportunities. I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, in every challenge uh, that we face, we step up, we innovate around it, whether it's uh, dealing with, with Mother Nature and needing to, to, to uh, you know, develop new uh, seed varieties, the challenges that we saw with uh, with dicamba uh, last week is going to drive innovation in the herbicide space. Uh, so we're always innovating. Uh, I think that's that's what's so great about American agriculture is we're always trying to, to innovate and do something better every single year. Well, you mentioned dicamba. That's what we're going to talk about in the next segment. Thanks for the segue, John. Appreciate it. <laughs> I read your mind, Mike. You're getting this radio thing down uh, pretty well, you know, so you, you, you figured out how this works. Thanks, John. Take care. You got it, Mike. Thanks. Uh, All right. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Yeah, a lot of questions still around dicamba. We're going to get into some of those questions with Darren Kopik, President and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Still a lot of questions and concerns around the dicamba. And uh, one of those asking for some clarification from EPA is Darren Kopik, president and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association. He joins us now. Darren, thanks for being with us. What are your biggest questions uh, following the action taken this week by EPA? Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, We sent in two really simple questions from ARA. Uh, One of them is, what exactly do you mean by commercial applicator? Because the, the ruling that they put out 
makes reference to commercial applicators being able to uh, sell and apply the products until until the end of July. And so uh, there, there are some questions around what exactly that term means, and we're trying to get some clarity around that. Uh, the other one relates to product that might have been pre-purchased by a grower, but still is in storage at the retail warehouse, uh, hasn't been delivered yet, uh, because the EPA uses the word possession in their ruling. And so we're trying to get some clarity around that. Uh, one of the other things that we've done is we sent another joint letter over there with the Council for Farmer Cooperatives yesterday, suggesting that maybe EPA could publish an FAQ document that once they come up with answers to some of the questions that have been asked, they could put it out there uh, so people could see it. And we also offered to get our folks on the phone to help talk them through some scenarios if that would help. So a lot of questions, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll get some clarity here soon. Also a question about timing and the dates, uh, because EPA, while saying you could use uh, the product that's uh, on hand, it's also uh, announced it was canceling the certification of those products. So you got uh, what happens to products sold between June 3rd and June 8th when the cancellation order uh, goes, you know, was put into effect. So you got that window there. That's kind of a window of limbo, isn't it? It sure is. Uh, we don't know what, what to expect with products that were sold during that period because you know, people made a good faith business decision that the product was still able to be used if their state had told them that was the case. And so I've got to believe that, that some accommodation is going to be made for those. But at this moment today, we don't know that answer. The other concern has been, you know, state to state, different interpretations of what can or cannot be done. Uh, some of those questions are still being asked, and you, you may have different uh, situations depending on what state you're in. We, we sure had a situation like that earlier in the week where you had, you know, like states like Iowa or Indiana that said it was okay to continue using it under the existing label. And Illinois said, no, you can't use it at all. Uh, Illinois has now put out some guidance that allows people to use it within pretty strict confines from, from EPA's order. And so as I visited with members yesterday and today, I think most everybody has at least enough of a signal from their state agriculture department that they can do what they need to do. Um, and hopefully, I mean, we've only got, what, two weeks left in the application season. There's not much time left for, for these answers. It'll make any difference. No. Yeah, the timing of this, I mean, why wasn't this addressed before the growing season even started? I mean, you think about if it had happened, all this happens in December or January, it's sure different than it is now. Do you think EPA should have been more proactive? Uh, I mean, obviously, they didn't know how the Ninth Circuit Court was going to rule, but you knew a ruling was coming. Was there any way to prevent this? Not that I know of. I wasn't on the inside of those legal conversations with the court or the plaintiff's attorneys. But oral arguments for this case were heard in August of 2018. And so there's no reason to take this amount of time and then drop a bomb in the middle of, of uh, retailers and growers at the very height of application season, that, that that's too too uh, strange a coincidence to be a coincidence. Uh, it's unfortunate there's not a lot we can do about it, but it's just awful timing and could have been handled in a much more orderly fashion had somebody cared to do that. One of the things we've asked EPA to do, I know they've, they've got a decision to make about 2021 for these products. Right. And so we asked them in the same letter yesterday 
please make your decision, whichever way it goes, please make it soon so that people have a chance to ramp up production, get their inventories in line, make their production plans, and, and uh, what kind of seed I'm going to buy, get all those decisions done in a timely manner. Yeah, I, that was going to be my next question, because EPA's order is prohibiting all use of dicamba past July 31st, so that brings into question next year. And as you say, farmers want to make plans, so we need clarification in enough time to avoid this happening again next year. Sure, and it even backs up from the grower decision because the, the registrants need to know whether they're going to manufacture those three products for next season or if they need to put something else in the pipeline that will be an alternative. And they probably can't do both. So the sooner they know, the better. Do you think, do you want EPA to appeal this court decision on dicamba? One of the things we suggested early on to EPA was that they should appeal and request a stay. And the only reason that we suggested that they do that is back to the point of this happening right in, in the absolute worst possible time of the year for growers and retailers. Put a stay on there. Let us finish this season under the current rules. And then we can sort out what 2021 is going to look like. Uh, for whatever reason, EPA has decided, at least to this point, not to appeal the case. And so that's not an option that's available to us at the moment. That gets back to my earlier question. What could EPA have done to help avoid this? It, that, isn't that what they could have done? Appealed it as soon as the decision came out and requested a stay so we could have gotten through this season without this happening? That could have happened, yep, and, and that's what we suggested to them as one of the things that they could do. Uh, but the, the order came out, and they elected to uh, to go that route instead of appealing the decision. And here we are trying to get information and a lot of questions out there that still don't have answers. Hopefully, you'll get word back from uh, EPA uh, from the letter you've sent them for more clarification. And if so, we'll, we'll talk with you again, Darren, and, and, and see what they have to say. Thank you so much for being with us. You bet. Thanks, Mike. All right. You take care. Darren Kopik, president and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association. Still confusing situation. Maybe not as confusing right now, but still a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to these uh, dicamber rulings. We'll try to keep you up to date. More on that tomorrow. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA. Stay safe, everyone. <music> 